keep repeating to yourself, it's only a movie. This is Culture Transmissions Podcast, where we talk about movies that are cool. With your hosts, Clay Buttons, Eric Salazar, Brian Trout, and Patrick Colwell. Now, let's talk. Alright, this is Cult Transmissions. We thank you for tuning in once again. Um, what'd you guys watch this week, Clay? Uh, I watched, uh, I went ahead and rewatched most of, uh, the last, or the latest season of, uh, Westworld. So season three, uh, I am just head over heels for that show and I'm obsessed with sci-fi in general. So that, uh, that took up most of my watching stuff time. Uh, but it's really great. Uh, I, I kind of want to go back and watch the, uh, the original Michael Crichton uh, film. I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it like maybe once or twice when I was a kid. Uh, and it's certainly one of those things I, I, I feel I'll have an even greater appreciation for uh, now. Uh, but otherwise, as far as things I've watched, uh, the season premiere of Rick and Morty, <laughs> I watched that. It's all right. <laughs> But uh, otherwise, not just uh, just a whole lot of uh, Wes Craven getting ready for this and uh, New Nightmare. I did watch that, even though that was not the film I chose. So, God. just for fun, I was just I just I, I, I done watching what I had uh, what uh, my assignment, so to speak, and it was just like, well, it was fun. Let's watch the other one now. So. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I was I uh I watched some HBO series this week also. Um I don't know why I do this to myself, but I watched like a real bummer documentary series that they have called uh Atlanta Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children. Dude, I think that <clears throat> it's about I think I've been listening to the soundtrack of that I found randomly on Spotify. Because I have a really good synthy soundtrack, like like depressing synth stuff. <laughs> Honestly, I I haven't noticed okay. the 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 story is so is insane. It's about the um, it takes another look at um, a lot of unsolved murders and miss, missing children cases in Atlanta during the 1980s. Um, they ended up they did catch a guy for it and charge him with two murders, but it was like a 21 year old guy and. So I don't even remember the other the age of the other one, but uh, this is more about like how people in Atlanta don't think that that guy's the right guy. Mm-hmm. It's a lot about how the police, you know, their their work was subpar for the entirety of these murders that happened over a couple years, like a lot, thirty kids or something. Jeez, yeah, it was a lot. But and it was about the police basically not caring because it was an uh they were all African American children. Um and like especially in Atlanta and Georgia, you know, back in the fifties the, the police force was all KKK members. 
So, you know, it kind of, it was still lingering, especially in the South. But uh, I'm not finished with it yet. Um, but it's, it's a really good documentary. It's really dark and uh, heavy. So, <laughs> I don't, if you're not, again, if you're not in a good mindset, don't watch it yet. I was wrong. I looked it up. It was a podcast, I think, about the same thing called Atlanta Monster. Uh, yeah, they cut. Have you? Did you watch um, Mindhunter season two? I think so. Yeah, yeah. He's the the guy, the last guy that on that uh, in that season is about that guy they caught. Cool. That's all I have. Brian, what'd you watch? Let's see. I started off with uh, the old Larry Cohen classic from '82, Q the Winged Serpent. Uh, nice. Yeah, it's really fun. I'd seen it a long time ago. Didn't didn't remember a whole lot, but I remember having fun with it. But uh, basically, these detectives are working on a case of uh, like real ritualistic murders, and uh, it's almost like from the occult, you know. And uh, in the meantime, something big is attacking people, uh, and the police don't believe them, but. Uh, Turns out to be a fucking dragon creature. Um, and what, what's funny is like a small town or small time crook uh, is who finds its lair. So no one believes him. Uh, it's really funny. It's kind of like a, he's like running from the mob, but also leads the mob to this monster to feed them or feed the monster. It's pretty funny. But it's like a throwback to old 1950s monster movies. Uh, the lead actors michael moriarty he's really awesome he uh plays the role of the crazy ex-junkie ex-con that no one believes uh so it's got like crime mobsters monsters topless sunbathers getting decapitated blood literally blood literally raining down on pedestrians in downtown new york um solid seven out of ten for me um then right after that i think even the same night I jumped over to, I continued my my uh, vigilante movie kick with uh, 84's Exploitation Revenge Savage Streets. Have you guys seen that? Uh-uh. No. Ooh, it's a tough one. I have. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty jaded when it comes to movies, but this one, this one gets you. So it's about a teenage vigilante who seeks revenge on a group of violent thugs who raped her handicapped sister and killed her best friend. So the vigilante, the girl is um, Linda Blair uh, about 10 years after The Exorcist. Uh, Yeah, I've seen this. Yeah, so she has kind of fallen from that A-list status down all the way to the uh, exploitation B-movie status. But when she was like fully embracing it, and what's cool is not only is she the lead, but her handicapped sister, who's deaf, um, doesn't speak, is uh, Linnea Quigley, quite quite young and very clean and proper looking. is pretty pretty shocking when you realize who it is. Um, but yeah, there's just you know, it's got the rape stuff that normally I can stomach, but this one just happening to a deaf person. not that it's ever not bad but it was just really really hard to swallow but everything after that is just pretty fun you know silly kills silly dialogue 
just a lot of sexist dialogue. It was just the thugs in this movie are very they they push the boundaries with how bad they were. Um, but yeah, it's got you know fun revenge, fun high school delinquent parts. You know, it's kind of blends those two genres together. There's a lot of attitude, like the girls are just badasses, you know, so um, it's fun. It did its job. I'd say solid seven out of ten also on that one. I recommend it, but definitely buckle up before you watch it. That's all I got. I just watched one thing. Um, I watched the Alexander Dunn 808, The Heart of the Beat That Changed Music documentary on Prime. Um it's the birth and significance of the Roland TR-808. If you guys ever heard, like, search an 808, 303, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, it's basically the machine that gave us the low-end bass and unique sounds of hip-hop and funk and techno, basically anything electronic. I mean, I'm not real sure where any of that music would be without this machine. Um, and it just kind of dives into, like... The Japanese company Roland, like how they came up with it and kind of how everyone took it and ran with it, like with their own own style and everything. But it's, it's really cool. It has a lot of old clips of performances and interviews. Um, everyone from Beastie Boys, Frika Bambata, who's like a very influential um, guy that kind of started the movement in like New York City with all the break dancing, the funk and hip hop, and even interviews Phil Collins. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a watch of fans of hip hop or electronic music. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Awesome. Check that out. All right, guys. I think it's time. The reason we're all here. Uh, so this week we're celebrating a few of the films from Wes Craven. Uh, you all know him. You all love him. Uh, he's known for his work within the horror community and challenging audiences with his bold vision. He's directed, produced, and wrote many films. He's probably most well-known for his work on the 1984 classic Nightmare on Elm Street, which he wrote and directed. Another uh, huge film and franchise are the Scream movies. However, Craven's resume spans much further than Freddy and Ghostface. Yeah, uh, Craven was born August 2nd, 1939 in Cleveland, Ohio. His debut film was the 1972 Last House on the Left, which he wrote, directed, and edited. <clears throat> Next, in 1984, Craven reinvented the youth horror genre with Nightmare on Elm Street. Craven wrote and directed the film, but not the five sequels. In 1994, Craven returned to Elm Street with a new nightmare. The film was nominated Best Feature of the 1995 Independent Spirit Awards. Uh, the following year, Craven reached a new level of success with Scream. The movie grossed $100 million domestically, as did its sequel, Scream 2. Craven also kick-started uh, the acting careers of several, uh, including Johnny Depp and Sharon Stone. He even gave Bruce Willis his first featured role. Sadly, on uh, August 30th, 2015, Craven passed away after a battle with brain cancer. Like many of our cinema heroes, he leaves behind an iconic legacy, not only in horror, but in great cinema in general. His movies are still celebrated today and have been over the decades his career spanned. 
As long as there is a need for fear and wonder, his films will continue to live on. So thank you, Wes. Uh, Craven has given the film world so many gems that it would be impossible to cover in one night. So today we all chose one film to view and discuss. And I chose the 1972 Last House on the Left. Real, real, uh, real easy walk. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> a great decision I made. <laughs> I actually uh, go to sleep every night watching this. Marie and her friend. I feel like a woman for the first time in my life. Two girls from the suburbs going to the city to have a good time. Oh, wow. This is my roommate, Sam. Hi, girls. This is my sister, uh, Martha. Uh, Martha, these girls uh, you know, want to buy some grass. Four killers on the loose. Also looking for a good time. And the road leads to They meet in the last house on the left. What began as a birthday party ends as a nightmare. I want to give you something. I don't want that. It's worth a lot. I don't want See? I want to be your friend. No, you want to get free. I want to be your friend. Are you all right? Yeah. Hey, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just what did happen in the last house on the left? <laughs> Dr. Collingwood lived there. Are you sure we're not going to put you folks in any trouble? Oh, nonsense. Our home is yours. His wife lived there. I've always dreamed of a man who could take me easily. So did their daughter, Marie. They all lived there. Junior. To avoid fainting, keep repeating to yourself, it's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Last house on the left. So before I dive in, be warned, this film is definitely not for the faint of heart. Uh, the plot basically is two teenage girls are heading to a rock concert downtown when they disguise this decide to score some marijuana like you do. And then they deserve everything um, that came to them then. This month. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, they're then kidnapped and brutalized by a gang of psychotic convicts. The film stars Sandra Peabody, Lucy Grantham, David Hess, Fred Lincoln, Mark Scheffler, and Jeremy Rain. I've seen it before and then doing this review on it, it was, um, it's still hard to watch. David Hess is is absolutely terrifying. I think yeah. he made this film. I mean, it, it would be rough either way, but I think without him, uh, I don't think it would have the impact that it does. Mm. One thing I do want to point out, the band they're going to see is named Bloodlust. So they're, that name's taken, probably. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Craven's able to show the extremes while her protagonist is being held captive and her friend is assaulted. See her parents in love at home, baking a cake and preparing the house for her birthday the next day, which is, there's a lot of heartstring moments in this film. Like you actually feel so bad for the parents. 
at least until the last 20 minutes of the movie anyway. Hess and companies successfully pull off the vibe that they are indeed dangerous. Apparently the actresses were generally concerned and afraid of them and had to be coaxed back onto the set a couple of times. It's got your classic faulty local county police. And though I think like some of their scenes are kind of funny, mm. I don't really think they should be in there. I don't know. I, I think he probably put him in as a little comic relief just for how strong the content is. But I don't know, it kind of kept taking me out of the film, you yeah. know, they're, they're a little bit little bit much further in the film the girls are assaulted more and eventually both are killed one even being disemboweled uh the group find their way into mary's home who are taken in by her parents on where their daughter's body is currently floating nearby in the woods we have a dinner scene that feels like the whole film's about to catch fire i mean the dad starts to kind of notice things you know but uh i can't think of her name the the female convict is just like chugging wine glass after wine glass and they all kind of stutter over each other's what they're actually doing there and everything and you can just it's really really tense i mean you can feel it estelle mary's mother overhears the group discussing mary's death figure out who these people are so the parents begin plotting their revenge on the group and then here's like <laughs> where the film takes off. And I think it's really like 20 minutes until the end. And it's yeah. just insane. So I kind of did a step-by-step. Estelle, the mother, seduces Possum, which is a great name, by the way. <laughs> uh, possum <laughs> and Raccoon. Yeah. So it's not a typo. Yeah. I mean, he kind of he looks like a possum the way he acts. So I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She seduces Possum, and they go outside and have this pretty rough dialogue, uh, and then where she proceeds to tie his hands by his request. Uh, John, the dad, began setting booby traps throughout the house, including shaving cream on the floor, trip wires, and even wiring a doorknob. Outside, Estelle gets Possum's Possum. Uh, (laughs) Basically with a blowjob. So, yeah. She bites his dick off. Um, and he dies, I guess. Oh, yeah. I'm assuming. That's the main <laughs> I don't know. Thing. I've never had that done to me. Okay. Um, the main vein. God. <laughs> this is getting worried. <laughs> it's fine. I asked for it by picking this movie. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Back inside, Krug has awakened, and him and John are having a good scuffle. Um, Junior shows up. He's about to kill Krug when Krug convinces him easily to shoot himself. Sadie then escapes the house, and her and Estelle start a scuffle. Finally inside, John torments Krug with a chainsaw, eventually killing him right when the good old police turn up. Sadie falls into a pool. And then has her throat sliced by Estelle, and the movie ends. It sounds pretty choppy, but really, that's kind of how it is. It's just mm. one extreme after another, and then, like I said, the last 20 minutes are just out of control. Uh, just a few little tidbits. Obviously, due to the film's content, there's several cuts of the film. David Hess, who plays Krug, sings the majority of the film scores. Um... 
in Australia, the film is actually known as Krug and Company. Screw <laughs> <is> funny. <laughs> um, it's a real catchy number. Yeah, right? Um, the MPAA rated the film X, so Craven removed several minutes to receive an R rating, which wasn't enough, so he removed even more. Finally, Craven added all the footage back and received the R rating thanks to a friend he had who was on a film board. Thankfully, I think. Um, the crew had to set up special editing offices to restore the prints since all the prints were coming back from the theaters, chopped up from the content. Roger Ebert gave the film a surprising three and a half stars, which I'd kind of like to go and read this review because that doesn't really make sense <laughs> out of all his films and stuff. Yeah, I've heard him like complain about like graphic stuff for the sake of it. So maybe he saw some substance that some people don't see. In movies like that. I don't I don't know. <laughs> um and the film was shot in twenty one days. So obviously have you guys seen it? And if so, how do you feel about it? I mean I something you said reminded me I haven't watched it in a long time, but I do recall now the scenes of the family and stuff. So it forces you to see outside of just oh a kid getting killed. It's like the, the ripple effect of of someone's death you know that you never see you right. never see it in horror movies so when you do it it punches you right in the stomach so yeah definitely agree with all the stuff you said about Krug or David Hess should I say he uh we were talking about it off air he's definitely one of the better villain you know act character actors in my opinion ever in in the horror movie world um but uh yeah I mean I think it's Kind of a exploitation horror masterpiece, in my opinion. Way ahead of its time. Uh, still gets talked about. Still has podcasts named after it. Still has remakes, you know, which I won't even discuss. Uh, you mentioned yeah. Hess like, making this movie. And that's my biggest complaint, is there was no David Hess or Krug in the remake. For every good part in the movie, I was just like rolling my eyes at the character that was you know, being played by someone else <clears throat> for Krug. But anyway, that, yeah. that's my two cents. Yeah. I, I watched it once. I'll never watch it again. <laughs> one of those, like, <laughs> one time was enough. Yeah. Sorry, Eric. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that was it. That was it for me. That was, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was his review. It that's <laughs> it. You never uh, speak of it again. <clears throat> <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> yeah, I've done report. In fact, yeah, I, I quit. I'm out. I don't do this <laughs> I, I'm. I luckily saw this as an adult. Uh, I'm glad I, I've never saw it younger than that. But uh, me too. Yeah, there's. Uh, we probably seen it together. <laughs> but uh, the. Uh, I the end. I don't know. There's something about the end that's like, the revenge is kind of. I don't know. I, I just it, it kind of makes it all worthwhile, yeah. I guess, in a in a weird way. Yeah, like it's like okay, they are awful. You know, the characters are so awful, but they get it. You know, they get what's coming to them. So it's like, yeah, oddly satisfying, I guess. So I I really liked it. Left me leaving. Left left me okay about you know feeling okay about it 
Yeah. All right. Well, that's my pick. Um, I'm sorry if you go and watch this now, but uh, you should watch it. Uh, so, Brian, you're up next. All right. So, I decided to go with a film I had never seen before. Um, definitely a roll of the dice. Um, I went with 1986's Deadly Friend. If you enjoy there? being really scared, if you're not afraid of the unknown, if you found a friend in fear, then we have a friend for you. Hi. Samantha. Give me the police. The director who unleashed Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven, now brings you his most frightening creation. Get out of my house! She's killing people. Mom? <laughs> Sam? Sam. <laughs> You're so cute. Deadly friend. She can't live without you. Obviously directed by Wes Craven, written by Diana Henstall, who wrote the novel. I think it was just called uh, The Friend. And then uh, Bruce Joel Rubin wrote the screenplay. And it stars a guy named Matthew Laberto, who I don't think had been in any other feature films after this one. <laughs> there might be a reason. Uh, Christy Swanson as uh, Sam, the, the, I guess, sort of Tipsler character, if you want to think about it that way. Um, Michael Sherritt as Tom and Anne Ramsey as Elvira, who you recognize as uh, the evil mom. I forgot the last name of the Goonies. Uh, throw Mama from the train. That just that crazy. Fratelli. She's, yeah, Fratelli. Yeah. She's in a bunch of eighties movies. Um, but basically, the synopsis is after a, his friend is killed by her abusive father. Uh, the new kid in town attempts to save her by implanting a robotic microchip into her brain. Um, I mean, like you do, it, it sounds off. It, it, it sounds better on paper and, and I'll get into why it might not have turned out like that way. Uh, so basically this kid moves into a suburban neighborhood, which looks just like the Burbs neighborhood. I might add, um, it, uh, He's a he's like a science genius, like in high school, with a or I guess he's technically in college now, but he has an ama amazing and rather protective robot that he built named BB, um, decades before BB-8, might I add. Um, uh, things along the lines of like a Johnny Five. Uh, that's kind of who he reminds me of. Uh, he has a scholarship to a prestigious university. And uh, he soon meets the local teenagers in his, I guess, suburban cul-de-sac area. Uh, pretty, pretty neighbor Sam and the paperboy Tom, and he becomes good friends with both of them. He soon realizes that Sam's father is abusive, but minds his own business for a while. 
and uh, they get into some confrontations with the neighborhoods like crazy, you know, the lady named Elvira who threatens them with a shotgun like neighbors do. And then some <laughs> motorcycle bullies, uh, which BB handles by grabbing him by the nuts and throwing him, literally. Uh, it's quite, quite odd. So at this point in the film, I'm having a blast, you know. Uh, it's mostly just crazy kids with a robot doing crazy things. Um, then a few days later in the movie, they accidentally throw their ball into uh, Elvira's yard, who's like the local curmudgeon that everyone hates. And she has her, her yard like all fenced up and locked up. And of course, BB is like a genius. So he just unlocks it with his whatever, it's like an R2-D2 hand that comes out of his body. But uh, they get mad at her. And on Halloween night, they decide to prank her. And they're like doorbell ditching and stuff. And uh, she gets the last laugh by shooting BB to pieces with her shotgun. Paul cries hysterically like it's his like mom or dad. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, on Thanksgiving, soon after, a couple scenes later, uh, Paul and Sam share their first kiss. So you see the budding love uh, developing. Um, but then shortly after her dad pushes her down the stairs and basically kills her and he says she accidentally slipped and stays out of trouble, blah, blah, blah. And uh, after the doctors declare her brain dead and they can't do anything for her, they say, oh, in 24 hours, we'll pull the plug, which I don't understand why they would wait 24 hours other than to give Paul time to do his bullshit. But anyway, Paul enlists Tom to go help save her. And they sneak in late at night and retrieve her body. I can't remember the detail, but Tom, Tom, or her, his, his dad somehow has access into the whatever. Uh, so that was convenient. But anyway, they then <laughs> her and implant BB's chip, which he salvaged from BB's apart body, puts it in her brain, and it somehow fuses with the human body somehow. They explain it. Uh, but he she he wakes her up and then she has like very mechanical movements and it looks fucking stupid to be honest with you. Her hands are doing like the the Spock whatever Star Trek thing the whole time and like, it's just weird. They put like sh shadowy bags under her eyes to make her look dead and uh, they actually hired a mime to help the movements. But uh, you know I don't know how much it helped. Anyway, it's lets you know she's being controlled by BB essentially from that point. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to speed through the end. She basically goes on a fucking vengeful killing spree. Uh, she kills her father uh, a little fairly gruesomely. Um, and then she goes and hunts Elvira down. Everyone's probably seen the infamous basketball scene. Uh, <laughs> she obliterates her fucking skull. Uh, and then her cycle bully, I think I'm almost positive she grabs him by the nuts again. And uh, she like throws him through like a car, a cop car windshield and kills him. Um, so there's not a not a huge death toll in this movie, but it gets kind of crazy for a little bit at the end. But she even jumps out of a second story and attacks Tom for threatening to snitch. He like he's talking to Paul like outside and he's saying they should go tell somebody and instantly she just jumps out like she's a fucking terminator and, and uh tackles him and she's like strangling him but paul stops her but anyway her own <laughs> thoughts start slowly creeping back like her human thoughts and uh toward the end paul can't hide her anymore 
it's getting too out of hand and the cops are there like pointing a gun at her and then they're talking to Paul, you know, get in trouble. And that's when she's like, Paul, Paul, Paul. And she realizes who Paul is. And she's like running towards him. And the cops think she's running at them. So they kill her, like for real. And uh, Paul's all sad, holding her, like saying her name, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, you think, okay, that's probably the end. Nope. Uh, Paul breaks into the morgue. <laughs> fucking tries it again. And uh, when he gets there, she, like, grabs him by the neck. And her fucking face, like, melts off or rips off somehow. And you see BB's fucking weird face under hers, which makes no sense. All I could think was, why why did this happen? And you hear, like, BB's voice and then, like, a, a neck snap. And she kills her fucking boyfriend. So, anyway. Nice. I'll get to why this makes no fucking sense. But before that, I kind of want to, uh, now that everyone knows the whole movie, there's some background that explains a lot of bullshit. But anyway, it was originally intended to be an opportunity for Craven to shoot his first big studio film to showcase his range by stepping out of the horror genre, like John Carpenter did a couple years before with Starman. Uh, Jeff Bridges, you guys probably seen that. Yeah. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. Uh, they they tested this with a fucking auditorium full of Nightmare on Elm Street fans and Craven fans. So they were watching Last House on the Left and wanting some shit like that. So they basically boo it and demand more violence and gore. And the studio caved in and butchered it. And they added all these weird, like, dream sequences that were basically Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, her dad basically becomes fucking freddy krueger in the movie very weird so it turned it into like a jumbled mess of scenes that make no sense just because of one test audience anyway craven originally set out to make a character focused dark romance like thriller like you know but more focused on the kids anyway uh the flow was ruined and especially that stupid ending um so eventually craven and the film's writer uh reuben disown the film so that just shows you uh it makes it makes you realize that you know it was very confusing mess of a movie for a reason that's not the movie he set out to make but my personal thoughts um before i even read about the film's production woes that i just spoke of i was super confused when the credits rolled uh huge identity crisis um it's extremely unfortunate given it was like a huge opportunity for Wes um, and it might've costed him a lot through his career. Um, I love the stuff with the kids in the neighborhood, all their hijinks with BB the robot were really fun, entertaining. Um, I think BB kind of steals the show. I mean, he was probably one of the best characters in the, in the whole movie, but it gives you a taste of the potential Craven had if his vision were allowed because it was really well directed. The, the gore gags were fun, but just unnecessary. Um, I liked the science nerd chasing the girl aspect, you know, out of his league, all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't a great film. You did catch a glimpse of what could have been. Uh, Deadly Friend managed to show us the stranglehold that uh, studios have on filmmakers and how disappointing it can turn out. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's basically why 
came away with from the movie, but I have some trivia that is is a little more entertaining than the movie itself. Um, <laughs> Deadly Friend was Christy Swanson's debut, which I didn't realize. She was only 16 in the movie, which blew my mind. Looked older than that. Um, uh, she did at least 100 takes during the basketball throw scene. And uh, Elvira's fake head that explodes was stuffed with actual cow brains that the production crew picked up from a butcher shop nearby. Um, the robot BB costed over $20,000 to build. Um, West, West used a company called Robotics 21. His eyes were constructed from two 1950s camera lenses, a garage remote control unit, and a radio antenna taken from a Corvette. Um, and he could actually lift over 750 pounds. And the voice of BB was that of Charles Fleischer, who went on to voice Roger Rabbit and who framed Roger Rabbit. That's kind of crazy. Um, while filming the movie and having problems with the studio forced reshoots, uh, Wes and his ex-wife Mimi were going through a messy divorce. He even faced a $30 million lawsuit in court with a person who claimed not only to have written A Nightmare on Elm Street, but that Craven stole the support from them. On top of all that, he was removed from two major projects, Beetlejuice in 1988 and Superman 6, The Quest for Peace, uh, shortly before in 87. Uh, both, ironically, were distributed by Warner Brothers. So, yeah, they did not end on good terms. And uh, that same year, uh, the Stallone movie Cobra was another film that was butchered by Warner Brothers cuts and reshoots. Um, I didn't dive too deep into that, but apparently... That was a much different film uh, at one point, too. Uh, the early titles that were floated for the film were Artificial Intelligence and AI, which, as we all know, years later, uh, a film combining both titles would be released by, guess who? Warner Brothers. Uh, so, yeah, not a good uh, track record here. And then lastly, the, uh, the head of Warner Brothers at the time, Mark Canton, is the person who actually thought to add that silly shocking ending of sam killing her face off and killing our hero paul uh he was literally the only person on set who thought it was a good idea but no one had the guts to tell him otherwise because he was the boss and he was literally you know the one person they couldn't stop so they had to go through with it and uh sadly the writer reuben gets blamed for how shitty it ended up so um, yeah, just kind of a tragic, tragic story. I feel bad for Wes Craven. I didn't know all this, um, but I'm kind of glad that this is how it went because you watch this and you're like, this is not a good movie. Craven is much better than this, you know, but uh, it's not the worst movie. It's entertaining, but you can tell it's got, it's got issues. But anyway, uh, I think we should probably take a break halfway through here and then we'll jump over to Clay's pick. Uh, uh, I'm Freddy Krueger, and you're invited to my special get-together. But beware, you may never leave. Dial this number now. I've got some grisly details for you. And if you're one of my lucky callers selected at random, you'll talk to me live while you're awake and safe. So dial this number now if you dare. Talk to me live. Freddy Krueger is waiting just for you. $2 for the first minute, 35 cents each additional minute. Alrighty, so we're back and we're going to be talking now about the uh, the low-hanging fruit when talking about Wes Craven, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. 
the kids of Elm Street don't know it yet. But something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? We just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. I feel no shame for picking this movie because it's still my favorite Wes Craven movie by far. So, uh, really doesn't need much of an uh, introduction. So, uh, fuck it. <laughs> we'll just start uh, with our deep dive here. Uh, Wes Craven began writing Nightmare on Elm Street after finishing production on Swamp Thing in 1982. And uh, he began production on the movie after completing The Hills Have Eyes 2, which, uh, shockingly enough, I didn't even know existed before I had uh, come they, on that. They remade it. They remade the second one? Yeah, it exists twice. Jesus. Okay, well, I didn't know that. Okay, so there are two. You've had two chances. That I, <laughs> I missed both of them. <laughs> I'm not gonna have to watch it as punishment. The second, the, the remake. Uh, I do dig the. Uh, I believe that's Alexander um, uh, Aha or Aja, however you say his name. I'm talking part two. Oh well, no, I was just talking about that. The, the, the remake of two is garbage and it is not Alexander Aja. Okay. <clears throat> Good to know. And that is your punishment for not knowing about it. You have to watch but it. But you still have to watch it. Nah, yep. I'll, I'll, I, you know, I'll just pretend I watch it. I'll read, like, I'll do the cheat <laughs> on his, like, homework in high school. I'll just, like, read <laughs> a little bit about it on the internet and then uh, just copy and paste. Um, uh, <laughs> Craven pitched the film pretty much all over as it was rejected for one reason or another. So he's just shopping this thing like crazy. Uh, weirdly enough, at first, uh, when you think about it, is uh, the first studio to show interest was uh, Disney, actually, who asked Craven to tone down the mm-hmm. violence and market the film to preteens and teenagers. Uh, as absurd as that sounds, I think thematically this movie appeals more to younger people like teenagers and it like it has the whole like parents just don't understand kind well, of shit. Uh, that's that's who I, Deadly Friends should have went to fucking Disney. Yeah. I <laughs> I I honestly I I think when I hear think about it like I think that probably works way better than uh you think it has any right to. 
Like I, I could see a universe out there where uh, Wes Craven makes a uh, a more like a, a spooky kids movie about Fred Krueger uh, murdering kids in their sleep without any gore in it. Uh, like Goosebumps. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Uh, I, I'm glad we got what we got. But having said that, yeah. uh, Wes Craven's a really talented dude. Uh, I'm pretty sure he could have pulled that off. And honestly, <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure besides like, hey, uh, there's a lot of murder in your script here. Maybe none of that, bud. <laughs> Apart from that, I don't think producers at Disney, though, are going to like, you know, like we just heard with... Uh, uh, deadly friend uh like i I don't think disney's going to uh, interfere quite as much uh, with west craven so yeah i I think it works better than it actually sounds like it would um west couldn't win man everything they wanted the exact opposite and he's just like fuck let me make a movie goddamn right yeah (laughs) um this was actually uh also uh interestingly enough um this was actually new line cinemas uh first movie they actually produced uh prior to that they worked exclusively as uh, a distributor only uh and with that we're up to the uh release of uh, of uh nightmare on elm street uh released on november 16th 1984 uh it is <laughs> famously johnny depp's big screen debut uh where he plays the sleepiest boy ever like all this dude does is fucking go to sleep they like hey don't go to sleep we need you to not fall asleep it's like okay sure and then he just falls asleep every time <laughs> he's a teenager man <laughs> okay so uh this is a bit of a uh a, a bit of a uh a distraction here but i before i forget there's a scene in the movie it's the scene right before you know he gets swallowed up by his bed and probably one of the most iconic scenes of the film which is just rife with iconic imagery it's got so many iconic horror images that like it honestly has a surplus like Wes Craven could have you know like could have like sat on a few of these ideas for like another film or two you know what I mean like it's it's loaded but uh before that like Johnny Depp is like listening to records while having an actual tv just like sitting by him on his bed he's just like coddling this tv while listening to records like the the 80s equivalent of like a kid like on a laptop or a smartphone or something it's just like listen to your records while you watch the tv yeah it's absurd that's fun yeah it does it does sound pretty cool well to answer y'all's you know question about him sleeping constantly it's it's called beauty sleep play you know what? That is true. He was a good-looking kid. And this is before uh, uh, Johnny Depp. You know, this this is like, in my head canon, this is before Johnny Depp turned into the uh, the white beater he eventually became. So. <laughs> Actually, he was the one abused, Clay. Oh, okay. Catch up on your news, man. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. You're right. You know, I just... Uh... Amber Heard is the monster. Google she, it. She, look at her. She just built the fuck shit up. <laughs> Uh, look it up it, it's fucked up he got framed it's, right. caught on, it's caught on like audio and shit like yeah oh no shit yeah so, yes. I, so I can't so I can like, like Johnny Depp mugs at his head someone tell me someone tell me right now can I like Johnny Depp again <laughs> I don't know I, I think yes I, th- I I haven't looked into the whole story but apparently she 
was caught on tape like saying no one's gonna believe you blah 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 tell on me all you want and she was like throwing mugs and shit at his face and stuff so yeah apparently she finally got found out she was like basically dragging him through the mud because no one would believe him all right well fair enough hey johnny depp i'm sorry bud we can we'll be buds again follow up. follow up on this and, and report back next week <laughs> All right, go ahead. No, we will not. <laughs> uh, the film uh, was made on a, a pretty low $1.8 million budget. It grossed, however, $25 million, which is uh, pretty good for a movie at the time. Um, uh, this is probably the most interesting bit that I, I, I found, which is the, the, the movie is kind of, the inspiration is sort of a combination of newspaper articles about men dying in their nightmares in, I believe, Southeast Asia, and the pop song Dreamweaver, uh, <laughs> uh, which in the case of the, the song, at least, was also an inspiration for the, uh, the synth-heavy soundtrack uh, composed by one Charles uh, Bernstein, who I now want to call Berenstain, uh, after the bears. Can, that's a good laugh. That's a, yeah. That should have been laughed there, but there wasn't. <laughs> can we just get a laugh track? Yeah, I that. smiled, but oh. I can't see. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, man, the soundtrack is not good. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't remember it. I just remember like the Freddy Krueger lullaby, but yeah. I don't even know if it was in that. Song. It's it's yeah. really really thick, really like it sounds like something you'd hear in like an eighties anime or something, or like it literally sounds like just one step like up from like the vampire like the Vampire Hunter D soundtrack from like the eighties anime or whatever. But the... it's it's no uh, Dream Warrior, yeah, that's for sure. Dio, yeah, talking. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Dio did, did a different soundtrack. I forgot. You what know what? Fuck this. We're just going to start this whole segment over again. Everybody just... <laughs> I was about to say, delete this. Just d- d- delete it all. No, uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> and Clay's uh, gone. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I, uh, again. Uh, but... Uh, Wes Craven kind of goes on to say, like, the inspiration, at least from the newspaper articles, is he's just, like, reading all of these newspaper articles about, like, all these people dying during, like, in their sleep or, you know, like, during, like, particularly hard nightmares or whatever. And, like, he's, like, they're all disconnected. You know what I mean? Like, he's, like, so nobody's even connecting the dots on these, right? It's just, like, anyways, uh, uh, in the news today, someone died during their sleep and then, like, you know, a few weeks later, someone else died uh, in, in, like during their sleep, and he's like, nobody's even like, which kind of, I guess, gave him the idea of like how the parents are like dismissive of like the kids, like no, 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 shut up, you guys are kids, whatever. Uh, pretty fun. Um, and mm-hmm. then, uh, just like Krug from uh, Last House on the left here, uh, Freddy Krueger is named after Wes Craven's childhood bully, who's just named uh, Fred Krueger. So, real subtle. <laughs> Real subtle dig at his bully. Just spent most of his career just fucking just taking this guy's actual name and just dragging it through the mud. It's pretty <laughs> great. I wonder what uh, Fred Krueger's doing now. <laughs> I was just like, I should have been nicer to Wes. Uh, maybe it would be a job or something. Uh, uh, 
so as far as like my thoughts on the film, it it's it obviously it holds up really well. I mean, apart from like the clunky soundtrack, it's it's more well paced than I remember, which I never remembered it being, you know, poorly paced. But uh, the pace is just 92 minutes and it's all killer, no filler. It really doesn't spend too much time just kind of holding your hand or, or pulling some bullshit. Every scene has some creepy, like almost dreamlike kind of things to the point where it's something I never considered until like this, you know, watch of the movie, which is probably like number 20 or 30 at this point. I've watched it so much. Uh, but the, the whole movie, whenever you like kind of look at it, like actually feels rather dreamlike to the point where you're like, you actually kind of don't know what's waking life and what's, uh, particularly by the end of the movie, which is on purpose, but you can kind of go back and look. It's like, actually, I don't know if this was ever not a, a nightmare. You know what I mean? Like, it's the whole movie's pretty dreamlike, um, which works to the benefit of the film because uh, there are certain absurd kind of scenarios that, like, would otherwise be a really tough pill to swallow, even, you know, uh, even in a movie. Uh beyond just the uh, killer stalks teens and their nightmares uh, set up for the film. At one point, like Nancy literally booby traps her whole house with a, a mother who's just drunk all the time. So like, that's a horrible idea just to trap Freddie. Uh, but it lands a little bit better. If you, what you're, if you, you know, at least have doubts that what you're watching is actually happening versus it just being a dream. Uh <laughs> But the whole movie also, like I said earlier, does does have that kind of uh, parents just don't understand, man. Like very kind of teen angst uh, kind of feel. It feels like that and also kind of almost a, a goofy teen hijinks like Scooby-Doo kind of thing more than a, at least feels like that more than it feels like a slasher to me, uh, even though obviously the entire cast gets got you know, as far as the teenagers are concerned. Uh <sighs> But yeah, I guess, you know, the only other thing to really say as far as like what I've taken my notes on is the fact that um, this movie obviously made Robert England who he is, but uh, you just can't, uh, particularly in this first movie uh, where he's not too campy, you know, they don't go too crazy with uh, Freddy. Uh, He's great. He's so good in this. Like, oh my God. Like, but uh, he was so creepy. Like, Wes Craven initially wanted a more like your kind of uh, uh, more brooding uh, Michael Myers, Jason, you know, big uh, archetype for um, Freddy. At one point, even it was going to have a scythe, a scythe rather, I'm sorry, uh, as like his primary murder implement. Wow. But uh, in fact, I think he had like the 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 knife fingers was um, one of like the last bits of Freddy to like have to kind of come together, Uh, including initially he was just going to wear a mask just like Michael Myers and just like Jason. But he, once again, he kind of, I think it's whenever he decided after trying Robert England and seeing how like Robert England went to like a dark place that Craven kind of wanted him to go that he's like, okay, so instead of this big uh, hulking menace, we're going to go with like a creepy, almost psychological menace, uh, which obviously worked better anyways. But yeah, uh, the the burns on the face was what I was going to say. That was another kind of 
Wes Craven is kind of an audible. Like he's like, ah, all the all the slash all the teen slashers are wearing uh, masks. So let's uh, let's do something a bit different. Uh, so went with the uh, horrifically scarred and burned face. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's still a great film. It's still absolutely <clears throat> iconic. The you know you can just n- name the scenes. The Freddy Krueger. You know, uh, trying to pop through the wall, seeing the Freddy Krueger coming, you know, popping out from under the bed uh, in the sheets. The Freddy or uh, Johnny Depp getting swallowed up by a bed a bit. It's all uh, it's all pretty iconic and it all holds up uh, shockingly well, which is something cannot be said for the remake is just terrible. Even oh, for Ots when it came out, whenever they first came out, like this is bad, and it only it only gets worse. <laughs> like, let's not, let's not I, talk about that. I already did. I did. We're in it now, man. Oh, and I, I I do feel obligated to point out, Cropsy from the burning was also burned before this came out, so they weren't oh, all okay. weren't all so, wearing masks. No, we're doing a, we're doing a Wes Craven uh, retrospective today, where we're we're honoring Wes Craven. But Trot just wants to take a big old shit on it. Wants to talk about his bad movies and wants to talk oh. about how. I didn't say he ripped them off. I just defended <laughs> the burning in saying they also didn't want to be, you know, they wanted to be original also. That's you're what I said. You're a monster. No, and you're kicking out. on Elm Street. Freddy is nothing like. Me. It's, I'm just saying. It's fine, Clay. You'll have your chance, Clay, when we do the. Uh... The old eraser head episode, or any of the yeah, David just, Lynch films, you can, can slamming. I couldn't do that. I love David Lynch. <laughs> I'm not shitting on anybody. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm, uh, def- I'm defending my boy Cropsy. That's all I'm doing. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Trump literally threw me off. Like I had more thoughts, but like, I can't. <laughs> Your notes don't mention where the Chris, uh, Christmas sweater came from. I, I always wanted to know that. Oh, uh, it was just like uh, he wanted something that was like apparently those two colors were just the most clashy colors ever. Like, or just the most. So he was just like, "Fuck it, yeah, that sounds great." Like, basically, just the idea is he's just the grossest looking person ever. So. It's a very weird mixture of uh, things, that's for sure. But yeah, imagine Freddy without the glove. That'd be weird yeah or without the burns or without any number of like kind of audibles that yeah Wes Craven sort of called uh yeah the whole film just kind of feels like a perfect storm you know what I mean like yeah so uh I guess having said all that um we're gonna kick it over to Eric for our last uh our last film here all right so I went with 1991 the people under the stairs. In every neighborhood, there is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. Something's in there. We gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. 
She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. There must be another way out. Can't get out. No one ever has. What goes on in this house is a sin. Your father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. But what goes on under the stairs <laughs> is a nightmare. It is time to clean house! Cravens, the people under the stairs. Mm-mm-mm. I love it. <laughs> okay. This is an American horror comedy written and directed by Wes Craven, of course. Craven has stated this movie was partially inspired by a news story from the late 70s he saw in which two burglars broke into a house and inadvertently led the police to find two children that were locked away by their parents. The film was made on a relatively low budget, six million. And like unlike Deadly Friend, it had significantly low studio interference. Yeah, he could do whatever he wanted. I guess in in doing that, it opened that number one spot at the box office. And it remained at the top 10 for a month. If they just let them be, you know, they're going to get something good. Like, so the worldwide total of the film was over $31 million on a $6 million film budget. Yeah. Yeah, it was a surprise commercial success. uh, Received generally mixed to positive reviews from critics and audiences. It's been analyzed for satirical depiction of gentrification, class warfare, and capitalism. A bit about the plot. It's about a it's about a poor kid named Fool. He's played by his favorite <laughs> Mighty Duck, Brandon Adams, which he, I'm pretty sure he got an award or nominated for an award for this film. Yeah, um, he was really good for a child actor. Yeah. He, yeah, I think it was for a child acting nomination. But anyways, a little bit about this film. His mom gets sick with cancer and they live in like um, the projects and like in the movie, they keep they call it the ghetto a lot. They have no money, so she doesn't even go to the hospital for treatment. So he's like, I got to find money to help pay for my mom because she's going to die or whatever. His mom's not working. Uh, his landlords are charging three times the rent if you're late once. So it's basically like, okay, they know these people are poor. They're not going to be able to pay this. And that's the point. It's a point to get everyone evicted from their housing what you find out later is their plan all along. Fast way to make money is to, he's offered to rob a house that happens to belong to the landlords, which are probably the best characters in any film. Everett McGill and Wendy Roby were cast as Robinsons as the married couple, Big Ed and Nadine Hurley um, on Twin Peaks. Yeah, they are great in that too. Yeah. That this is one of the most memorable performances for me. Man, it's they have some they have some of the funniest parts in the movie, but at the same time they're really scary, really creepy. 
and uh, weird. Like, they make you feel really weird. Yeah, I always call him Big Ed, but Everett McGill, you get to see the range in the two things you mentioned because he is fucking maniac and people under the stairs uh, running around in a gimp suit. And then in Twin Peaks, he's <laughs> like a nice, wholesome dude you'd want to hang out with. It's, it's fucking weird. Nadine's the, or his wife's the crazy one in Twin Peaks. She's like, she's like the, the brains of the operation here. And you do yeah. see that because they, they're like so two faced that, you know, like the cops show up and they act like all wholesome, just like you're saying, mm-hmm. but then they have the insane, you know, crazy part. They both pretty much go crazy in the movie fool. And the two men he was with, uh, they break in, they all get caught, they kill the two adults, and they, they try to feed Fool to a group of cannibal kids they have kept locked up on, in their basement, which are, like, so scary looking to me. I, I remember, them, like, seeing this as a kid, and it was like, I used to be so scared of that. Like, they are, they're all, like, rockers with long hair, but they have, like, a yeah. weird pale skin. Well, well, they don't get haircuts. Yeah. Oh, he gets out of that because there's a a kid that escaped those cages in the basement that lives in the wall, and his name's Roach. I always remembered Roach, too, because I thought it was a really sad character. He's very memorable. Because he can't talk because his tongue is cut out, and I'll I'll explain that in a little bit. But Roach uh, befriended the couple's daughter, who actually isn't their daughters just i don't know how they're getting these kids i guess they're adopting them or stealing them or something i i'm not i don't think it explains very well they both go by daddy and mommy <laughs> so daddy so the idea i think they're they're trying to find the perfect child for themselves which their brother and sister by the way i forgot to mention that they come from a rich family and they own like all the buildings in this ghetto or inner city and they just completely let it, dilap- you know, become dilapidated so they can tear it down to build condos, basically, gentrify it. Uh-huh. Doing all that, they are racist as well. There is a hard N-word mention said in this uh-huh. movie. They're looking for this kid, and uh, if they talk back or don't listen, or they do hear something they shouldn't have or see something they shouldn't have, Daddy will remove all the bad parts from the kids. Like, if the kid talked back, he'd cut their tongue out, which must have happened to uh, Roach. I'm assuming he would either, he would cut their tongue out, like blind them, or, you know, cut their ears off or something. Because there's a whole thing of, like, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. So what you're saying is, do not try to get fresh with their daughter. (laughs) <laughs> well, she's the only one that hasn't spoken any evil, apparently. He, he just means they're going to cut your wiener off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, may I, I don't know. There's a weird... You know one of, those, one of those guys down there are missing their wiener. You know it. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, so, like you said, he when he, like, hunts this kid, they, like, get off on hunting these people in general. They want people to break into their house, it seems like, so they can hunt them down and kill them. But uh, mm-hmm. like you said before, he dresses in a full gimp suit with a gun yeah. running around the house, like screaming at the top of his lungs. 
<laughs> it's, it's pretty insane. It, he's almost getting off on it. You're right. I, I never noticed that as a younger gentleman watching it, but as I was older, I was like, this is fucked up. <laughs> yeah, because there's a point, like, so Daughter and Roach end up helping Fool escape the house, but, like, there's a part where, like, they jump out of the window and the daughter's too scared to go outside because she has, hasn't been outside for a really long time, apparently. Captures her and chains her up down in the basement. And he shows up and he's like rubbing his crotch. He's in the gimp suit and he's like being really, you know, weird like that. But his what, sister shows up and she calls him. She's, you know, like, daddy. <laughs> She's like, come on. And she, she keeps looking and she knows what he's doing. So I don't know if that's happened, before, like if he's doing that to her or not. Seems like probably. But it was just mm-hmm. kind of uh, a weird little tidbit that he added in there. So Fool escapes. He goes home. He tells people about what's happening. The people kind of know what's this, like rumors um, that the whole family's been weird, apparently. So he's like, I got to go back and help those kids. Like he wants to go back and get the daughter out and he gets the whole neighborhood to like knock on the door and show up and like you know basically keep him busy so he can sneak back in roach ends up getting killed and he initially went in there to get the uh, rare coin collection to steal from him Mm. and roach has that for some reason and uh he gives it to him or whatever and gets shot and killed the people under the stairs those kids end up helping fool and show him like this big vault of money and gold and like they just hoard all this money and a bunch of cash and for some reason dynamite is in there <laughs> so fool ends up uh he he i guess he's tech savvy because he knew how to wire it up somehow and daddy g- goes down there and finds him or whatever and he blows him up he blows the whole like basement up and it ends up blowing all the money out of the chimney, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I guess it was kind of like a thing. Like, it blows all this money flying everywhere, and all the people are grabbing it, you know. So it's like, you know, they got some of their money back that this couple, this family has gouged from them for years or whatever. That's basically the whole movie. But it's so it's a really fun movie. Like, it's well-paced. Like, it just starts... And it doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. Like I hadn't seen it in a really long time, and I, 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 you know, I did some movies I didn't know they don't hold up like when you're a kid. But man, this one was fun. I I watched it with my wife, and she enjoyed it. And she's not a big horror movie person, but uh, she actually it's kind of weird because you said it earlier, but she's like. At the beginning, she's like, this kind of feels like the burbs. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so, like, so this whole movie was about, you know, gentrification and class warfare. And I've noticed a lot of horror movies, uh, they all depict some sort of real-life villain, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. Just more absurd, of course. But, uh, and some are right on the money like <laughs> you, you'll find someone that's exactly like that in real life but uh i was just thinking about like I, I don't know if watching that documentary made me think about this like how those 
kids, you know, the poor African-American kids are treated. It's just the whole entire world right now with the class warfare and capitalism showing, really showing through this global pandemic, like how the people with money, you know, they're sitting at home, they're not really doing anything. And all the people with no money like us are keeping this world moving. Yeah, by risking our health and whatever else. But uh, the movie was awesome. Still holds up. If you have not seen it, you should definitely watch it. Um, and that's pretty much all I've got on it. Apparently, at one point, Wes Craven said he would remake the film, which he did. D- it doesn't need it. Along uh-huh. with The Last House on the Left and Shocker. There was a, re- a remake of The Last House on the Left, as we said. So it left the news of like the people in the stairs remake fell dormant until 2015. It was announced, but it was like right before Wes Craven's death. He was developing a people under the stairs TV series for the sci-fi channel, which we'll never see. Um, Also a little bit, a tidbit, the universal universal studios, Florida had incorporated the house of uh, mommy and daddy with other elements of the film's plot into a maze attraction in the past. Oh, the that, Hollywood Horror Night? Yeah. How, That's awesome. Yeah. And it was also Man. featured in uh, drive-in, uh, on the drive-in movie screen in the Twister Ride It Out attraction at Universal Studios. Huh. <laughs> but, yeah, that's all I got. Can Be Effects Group did the effects for it nominated for a Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. Really good movie. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more original horror movies I remember. I mean, it stuck with me. I saw it pretty young, probably like 12. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I didn't really understand it all back then, but you summed it up really well, what it's really about. It's yeah. a lot more, it's kind of the whole George Romero approach. He didn't want to just make, you know, mindless horror movies. Yeah, he never, he never really did that, to be honest with you. And I, I, I think I, what I like about Wes Craven is a lot, not always, but a lot of his movies um, that he has control over, apparently, it seems like, uh, you know, ends kind of with a good guy on top, you know, for the most part, uh-huh. which is a little different, not, not to your style, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, Scream wasn't like that. True. Scream, Scream, Scream ended with uh, with the good, 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 good guy. And the only thing I can think of is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street ends, you know, with uh, the mob getting pulled through the door. But otherwise, yeah, he's always going with the uh, classic good guy uh, prevails. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's different killers every time. But I was just thinking, you know, oh they, yeah, <laughs> they get haunted for twenty thousand movies or however many there are. Yeah, but yeah, well, I guess the characters keep switching. <laughs> so, anything else about Wes Craven you guys want to say? Rest in peace. Yep, may he rest. Yeah, Thank thanks. You. Sure, we'll touch up on some of his other movies in the future. So, I mean, need to right now. Yeah. I kind of wanted to, but best to save it for another day. Yeah. So, I guess next week we'll go back to the regular scheduled programming. It's my turn to, this week, and I got a good one for you guys. We've talked about it a couple times, but I think I said that. But 
All right, are you ready? It's 1993 movie that has Seth Green and <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> it has Alfonso Ribeiro, Carl. <laughs> We're going with oh, man. It's on Amazon. We're going to watch Ticks. Oh, yeah. boy. I, I watched the other day, and it's a lot better than I thought it was. You guys are going <laughs> to Man, just think. <laughs> he, went from, he went from Fresh Prince to Ticks. To fucking America's funniest home video. What a what a what a arc. I think he did. He was he was already in he was doing Fresh Prince when he did this. And the the yeah. uh, the uh character he plays is not Carlton. He tries to play like this hard thug gangster guy from the street. So, and it's so what you're awesome. saying he's pretty fresh in the movie. He's he's the fresh prince. That's good. He deserves it, man. There's no silly dancing either. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm not watching I, can't, it then. I can't wait to watch a hard Carlton. I yeah, I only play the hits. You know what I mean? Do the Carlton dance and everything. Yeah. <laughs> no, he go he go hard in this movie. No, I do. I do want to point out. I like this idea Patrick had about these uh, retrospectives on directors. I'm I'm looking forward to the next one. It was like fun homework almost. But then again, I got to choose a movie I'd never seen. I don't think anyone else got to do that. The The next one's going to be Takeshi Miike. And everybody, in order to give a good perspective on this whole career, you're just going to have to do, everybody's going to have to do 10 movies. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm down. I like Miike. I'm down. I got, I own a handful of them. All right. So, Ticks. Yeah. All right. I just want to go watch it right now. <laughs> yep, ticks. I've actually already started it. I'm like five minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I just wanted to say um, we've heard people having a really hard time during this pandemic and being self-quarantined, you know, and all. So just call your friends, FaceTime, reach out to talk, give somebody a call. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Or message uh, us. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook uh, and message us. And listen to us on Spotify. Yeah. That's and it. Good Thanks. Bye. Later. This is my last episode ever. <laughs>